You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together on this um, Sunday in Advent, and I pray that you will draw our hearts to you in in a season of anticipation and eagerness, Lord, for you to come and to make everything new. And I ask, O Father, in your mercies that you would strengthen us and encourage us in the gospel and that you would do your work in our midst that we pray you would do so mightily. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For those of you who were here last week, uh, spent some time in Isaiah um, thinking about um, Isaiah, what I, I, and again, I didn't anticipate this being the theme of the class, but here it is, two weeks, and it's, and it's emerged. Um, so what I would call life at the seams uh, in the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah presents these various seams in the book that move from maybe some sort of picture of what you might consider to be despondency or despair, or um, all on account of God's judgment, that then you flip the page or move to the next chapter and it emerges into a scene of beauty, new life, and hope. And that, that seems to be at various critical junctures in the book. Last week, we were looking at, the, at that critical juncture of Isaiah 10 to 11. First, we looked at Isaiah 1 going into Isaiah 2. So Isaiah 1 says, I've raised children, but they're rebellious, and, and I'm going to cut them down like a tree. And then Isaiah chapter 2 presents this image of Mount Zion being raised as the chief mountain of all the world with the nation streaming to be taught um, uh, uh, by God's own instruction. So you have that sort of fascinating scene there. Then at the end of chapter 10, you have God's destruction announced again. Um, I'm going to cut them down like a tree. I'm going to lop off their boughs. I mean, it's it's a hard read. And then you kind of flip the page uh, and you go into Isaiah chapter 11 and it's the promise of this new messianic era with the messianic era being described in this kind of hyperbolic sense of wolves lying down with lambs, and now, I, let me let me rephrase that: um, hyperbolic on one level, but re- very real on another. And I mentioned to you one of the commentaries that I read that sort of stripped down all of that imagery of the wolf and the lamb and the lion and the child and the cobra, kind of reduced all of that to say kind of tropes or images that were typical of the ancient Near East. When you, would, when you would ascribe some sort of moment to a new king that comes onto the scene. I, I call that kind of a, a expositional a naturalism or kind of reductionism, something like that. But I think what, we're, what you saw there within that particular way of talking about the new heavens and the new earth, um, it's centered around um, the fantastical. It's centered around um, the reordering of creation back to its intended status, that, that kind of thing. So before I get to our next theme today, which is going to be at the theme of 36 to 39 into chapter 40, and then our series will be done. Um, before I get to that next scene, a theme, it was just kind of a strange providence. I got up um, early this morning doing some reading. I've, I've been fiddling in this book by Ralph Wood um, called uh, uh, Chesterton, The Nightmare Goodness of God. Who, who are my G.K. Chesterton people in the room? Anyone? done some reading a man called thursday and um i mean he's he's a he's a fascinating guy um rolf woods taught on chesterton for years at uh, both at samford interestingly enough and at uh samford wake forest and now he's he's been at baylor for a long time um but i wanted to read to you something that struck me um here and actually in the first chapter where um chesterton 
or at least Ralph Wood talks about Chesterton, and this is his turn of phrase, supernaturalizing the natural. All right, so, so when you think about um, the, the kind of worldview of someone like Chesterton that's dealing with what you might say a kind of supernatural lens by which the world is understood. So I'm thinking about all this in terms of the lion and the lamb, the child with the cobra, the bear, and the oxen grazing together. All of the imagery of Isaiah 11 is something fantastical, but it's fantastical within the confines of the material and the natural world. They're the images that we would be familiar with. And I think Chesterton, think about it, he's writing at the end of the, of the uh, 19th, beginning of the 20th century. This is the, this is the achievement of what one might call a kind of materialist slash Darwinian view of the world that might tend to, re- to reduce the world and its natural order to material causes that can be explained. I mean, I think that's crucial. We can explain why the world operates the way in which it operates. And what Chesterton is saying here, and I'm going to kind of read some of this to you, what Chesterton is saying is, um, we live in the sphere of mystery all the time, even with the natural world around us. And I wanted to just kind of drop a few quotes on you here. He says, um, and this is, this is Ralph Wood talking about this here, um, Far from being a secular activity to be set over against the sacred, art is a human response to to the divinely implanted desire for the beatific life. Now, I think what he means by the beatific life is a life that views the world in its entirety through the vision of God and God's being. That's a beatific life. Um, And so he he says here, and I wanted to to read this this section right from Chesterton, how important it is for children to live within the sphere of um, their, the fairy tales of their childhood. And I thought I had the right. Well, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Oh, I got the wrong quote. Hold on. Hang with me. Oh, here it is, sorry. This is what he says. Fairy stories reveal the original instinct of man for adventure and romance. Chesterton believes that the divine order to be so deeply ingrained in human existence that we acquire our most basic convictions from the fantasy books of our childhood, where the natural is already supernaturalized. Fairy stories reveal our desire for adventure and romance. They embody the same irregular equilibrium that operates in the physical world. Um, so you have to think, this is, the, this is the time of Einstein, right, here at the early 20th century. And this is what Chesterton says. There are certain uh, sequences or developments which are, in the true sense of the word, reasonable. They are, in the true sense of the word, necessary. So think about the way in which we could engage our world. Um, mathematical and logical sequences. So, for example, we in fairyland, he says, who are the most reasonable of all creatures, admit that reason and that necessity, you cannot imagine two and one not making three. So there's a natural order to these things. You can can easily imagine trees, um, and here's how he contrasts this, but you can easily imagine trees not growing fruit. 
You can imagine a tree growing golden candlesticks or tigers hanging on by their tails, right? So let me frame this because I think I'm getting lost in the weeds here. Um, what Chesterton is saying is when you look at the material world around you, there are certain things that can be explained by mathematical and logical consequence. In no conceivable world is two plus two something other than four. But what's happened in modernity is there's been a reduction of the way in which we view the world to the mathematical and the logical and the explainable. He said, and this is why those of us who live in fairyland, who live in the world of our childhood, recognize that that's not sufficient because we can imagine a world where there are trees that don't bear fruit like a child's fairy tale, but they bear golden candlesticks or they're tigers hanging by their tails. He goes on to say, when we are asked, and I, I love this, and uh, uh, I may regret reading this later, but I, I, I really like this. When we are asked why eggs turn into birds or fruits fall off in the autumn, we must answer exactly as the fairy godmother would answer if Cinderella asked her why mice turned to horses or her clothes fell from her at 12 o'clock. We must answer that it is magic. It's not a law, for we do not understand its general formula. So can, can, I, can, I, can I lean into that for a second? Um, what, what he's saying is, we live, with, we live in the world of the mysterious at all times. There are things that we take for granted around us that are happening all the time that really can only be explained in terms of the, of the fairy, fairy tale land of our childhood. Um, how in the world, and we've got chickens in our backyard, which is probably a mistake, but we've got chickens in our backyard. Um, oh, by the way, the possum is, is with the Lord. Um, and and I'll, just, I'll leave it at this. It, what, it wasn't me that dispatched that possum. I'll let you figure out the rest of that story. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, all, all to say... Um, uh, uh, we, we've got chickens in our backyard, no roosters, right? So of course we just have eggs, but I mean, think about it. An, an egg that you crack into your pan in the morning with the white and the yellow of an oak, a yolk, um, given the right circumstances could turn into another chicken. And that little chick, I mean, we, we bought these chicks in March, right? So early March, we bought these chicks. They're squeaking in our, in our bathroom. And here we are now you know, six, seven, eight, nine months later, and they're out in our backyard giving us eggs. How did that happen? Uh, that's, that's, that's the fairy tale we live in. Or, or, or the other one that we live with all the time, especially in Birmingham, Alabama, how does an acorn that goes into the ground grow and expand its material physicality in such a way as to in time become a tree? How in the world does that happen? And I know that the physicists and the biologists, we have one here, um, could explain all of this. I mean, I know that there's, you know, that, that cells sort of build on one another and they grow. I mean, we can give a physical explanation, but the point is we're living with the mysterious all around us. And we need those eyes. Why do we need those eyes? Because our culture, um, we didn't go to the nine o'clock service. Did it go late today? Oh, oh sorry. We started a little early, and I apologize, friends. Um, well, the point is, we, we live in that kind of world. So all of, all of that to say, Isaiah 11, that particular scene there of the wolf and the lamb and the bear and the child all playing together, 
that's something that's mysterious. It's a mystery. It's fantastical. It's the magical. But it's a necessary way of explaining and portraying for us what God does when He takes things that are disordered and makes them ordered again. It's, it can't be explained by mere natural causation. It's the miraculous. It's the magical. It's the fantastical. And the Scriptures, especially the prophets, don't know how to speak about these things in ways other than that particular account of reality. Now, that said, I want to go to our... our set. That was all prelude. Let's get to the substance of today. If you have Bibles, let's look at Isaiah 36-39 to very quickly. And I'll try to leave some time for some Q&A here. But Isaiah 36 to 39. Um, and I want you to see the seam here. Isaiah 36 to 39 is the last major chunk of Isaiah that leans into Isaiah chapter 40. And most, all critical scholars and most Christian theologians and scholars from the past have recognized that there's a seam that occurs from chapter 39 into chapter 40, where you move from an articulated stance of God's judgment over against His people, a promised coming judgment, that then opens up into Isaiah chapter 40, which is a new day. So this is, this is the seam um, that I want to sort of press in with you this morning. And by the way, it's a seam um, that's central to the book as a whole. One could almost think of Isaiah 1 to 39 as a before, with Isaiah 40 to 66 being a substantial after. So you have that particular view of before and after there. So what's happening in Isaiah chapter 36 to 39? Now you, can, you might be fascinated by this. Isaiah 36 to 39 is a carbon copy of a section that's already in 2 Kings. Uh, this, this, is a, this is of interest, I think, because you don't see a lot of that kind of borrowing that goes on in the Bible. There's a, lot, there, there's a lot of illusions and echoes that occur, but we're talking about like a lock, stock, and barrel um, taking something out of Kings and putting it into Isaiah to function in such a way as to link chapters 35 to chapters 40 to provide for you some historical explanation of why the events occurred in Judah's ancient past. And here's the story, right? So you, you, uh, you have Isaiah, the 8th century prophet, ministering in the time of um, uh, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and finally King Hezekiah. So let's, let's have a little, here's, here's a little um, uh, Old Testament introduction quiz for you, right? Um, Uzziah, good king or bad king? Good king, right? Um, Ahaz, good king or bad king? Bad, right? Uh, and then Hezekiah, good king and goodish. That's a great answer. It's kind of a good answer for all of them, actually. Goodish, right? Goodish. Right. Um, Hezekiah is a fascinating figure, right? Because Hezekiah brought significant religious reforms to Judah, bringing Israel back into conformity with Torah, tearing down high places, the places of idolatry. Um, and it was really in what one might consider, other than the exile itself to Babylon, the most cataclysmic moment of Israel's history, of Judah's history. 
because uh, the Neo-Assyrians, who were a bad lot, I won't get, I want to get lost in the details here, but a bad lot, and had already come through and destroyed the northern kingdom. Samaria had been captured by Sennacherib and his marauding hordes. And then Sennacherib made his way down. The, think, think about the, I draw you my sort of famous picture of, of the ancient uh, Near East here, it's, but I can't do it here. But just think, kind of hugging the Mediterranean Sea, moving into the Shvelah, which is the plain regions of Judah, destroying those cities like Lachish and Gath. I mean, these were important strategic cities for Judah. Matter of fact, I think of Lachish on analogy to like central command at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. I mean, the Pentagon is in Jude in Jerusalem. Um, that's Washington, D.C. But the second most important strategic place militarily for ancient Judah was Lachish. And that was completely destroyed by Sennacherib. This is, and this is in Judah. In fact, some of you maybe have been to the British Museum before. But at the British Museum, they have a famous bronze relief of Sennacherib standing tall with the generals of Lachish bowing down to him in abeyance. Um, so this was this was a very turbulent time. Assyria was um, uh, a to- had a had a kind of philosophy of warfare that was total war. They left complete destruction in their wake, and so they they took what you might think of as a shepherd's crook. They go down into the Shephelah and they move back up toward the north, moving upwards toward Zion and Jerusalem. It, it's a bad moment. And so here comes, and here's a, I've, I've told other classes this, great dog name, I think. Matter of fact, I, I might consider using this. The Rab Shaka um, <laughs> is, um, is sent from, uh, from, the, from Sennacherib, who's based back in Lachish. Um, Sennacherib sends his Rab Shaka, which is a technical term for his chief military officer, who goes to the gate of Jerusalem and begins yelling at them a message from Sennacherib in Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? So they understood the language. And basically what the Rabshaka says in chapter 36 and 37 is, don't believe Hezekiah. Don't believe any of your prophets. He says, by the way, go and look at all the other nations that we've gone up against and ask them how it went for them. It's gone very poorly for them. And the same is going to happen to you. And so the leaders and the princes of Judah go and tell um, Hezekiah the story. And what's, and what's Hezekiah's response? This is very bad. Then Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah and he says, Hezekiah, this is the gentle paraphrase here, uh, this is very bad. Um, so what we need to do is we need to pray and we need to seek the Lord's face. So they did that. Hezekiah rent his garments. He went into a moment of prayer, sought the Lord's face. Um, in, in, a, in a real moment of national humility before the Lord, because they knew that their days were numbered. And so what happens, right? Well, you know the story. The story is remarkable. Um, they, they, they repent. They call out to the Lord for help. Isaiah comes and brings a word to Hezekiah and says, Do not trust in anything other than the Lord. He will deliver you. And what happens that night? angel of the Lord goes down to the camp of Sennacherib that's based at the bottom of Mount Zion. So think maybe somewhere in the Kidron Valley or somewhere in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. He goes down into there and the angel of the Lord smites 180,000 soldiers in Sennacherib's army. They wake up to find massive slaughter. And what does Sennacherib do? He picks up the rest of his remaining troops and he goes back to Assyria. Crisis averted. It's, It's a remarkable scene. And then you get to chapter 38. Right, so here you have this national um, 
act of salvation and deliverance that then becomes personal for King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah comes down with leprosy. And, um, and Isaiah comes to him. I mean, these, these prophets, I'm just, I mean, they're, they're the kind of people that say things with, um, very direct and unnuanced, um, <laughs> communication style, right? Uh, they, they, they don't fit so well in many facets of our culture today. Because what do the prophets do? I mean, Isaiah goes to Hezekiah, and this is in effect what he says. Um, you, you're gonna die very soon. I'd get your house in order. And then he leaves. That's it. You're going to die. Um, and what does Hezekiah do? He prays. He weeps. He falls on his face. He asks the Lord to preserve him. So you have this sort of fascinating move in Isaiah from the macro view of what happens with the city of Jerusalem itself. God preserved and saved Mount Zion. Now becomes sort of um, a micro view of what God does with Hezekiah in particular. God says through Isaiah, I heard your prayer. I'm going to give you 15 more years. And then Hezekiah rejoices and he prays like, oh man, this is, this is an incredible story. Hezekiah saw God's deliverance on a national scale. He has seen God's deliverance within his own life in the particularities of his own health. I mean, it's a remarkable tale until it's not anymore. And then you get to chapter 39. And I just, it's so short. Um, you see this at 39. At the time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan. So think, this is the king of Babylon. Babylon is not the world player that it would be in about 150 years. So you give Babylon about 150 years, and it's going to be a very different beast on the global geopolitical scene. But right now, it's Neo-Assyria's time, and Babylon is, is, is playing second fiddle. So they send some envoys and with presents and letters to King Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Right? So you can, you can get the scene. Word has traveled about what God had done for King Hezekiah. And the king of Babylon sends some envoys, uh, some emissaries into Judah to congratulate the king on his recovery and to make it a kind of celebratory moment. And here Hezekiah is at the end of his life. And look at these next verses. It's like between verse 1 and verse 2, you want to yell, um, Hezekiah, before you do what you're about to do, read Deuteronomy one more time. <laughs> just, just read it one, especially chapter 17. Just read it one more time because God does not allow or like for His kings um, to uh, to show off their strength and their power. That's why He says, don't don't add horses, don't add a great armory. He does not like His kings to show off their pride and their accomplishments and their achievements. Power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. And we know all these maxims and, the, and God does too. And so here you have between verse 1 and verse 2, the unthinkable occurs. And, and, this is what, and this is what's challenging about the unthinkable here. What's challenging is it's said so simply. In other words, it's not, there's no you know, quiet snare drum or timpani roll leading to a cymbal crash. It's just a simple narrative a simple occurrence that occurred that changes everything. Like the, now Hezekiah's world, and by the way, not just Hezekiah's, Judah's whole history is now set on the trajectory for something that seems so seemingly simple and benign, but it wasn't simple or benign. Look at what happens here. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Hey, guys! And then he showed them the treasures of his house. All the silver, all the gold, all the spices, 
all the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. I mean, he just put on the Ritz, right? Then, next verse. It's, there's, there's almost something um, unnerving about how, how terse and straightforward this narrative is. They arrive, he shows them all the riches of the land, and then verse 3, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, and by the way, I have to imagine that even though Hezekiah was for the most part a righteous king, my, my gut is he was never excited to see Isaiah. You're like, I mean, like Isaiah was like, I don't think he was ever like, okay, so here, here he comes. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and he said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And then he said, what have they seen in your house? Um, can we just stop for a second? Uh, and I don't want to chase this, but I'll just say this in passing. The prophets know how to ask questions. Remember like the, um, um, uh, the same thing with Nathan and King David. I mean, the prophets know how to ask these sort of pointed questions. Jesus does this, right? Um, where, where, where's your husband? All right. Oh, you don't have a husband. You have five. So the, this questions, you know, a- accusations, you know, they can, they can harden wills. Questions can stir the conscience. And this is a conscience stirring moment. Um, what have they seen in your house? I mean, th- this is where I think wonder if Hezekiah's like, this isn't going well. And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in all of my storehouses that I did not show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Do you get the punch here right? Those visitors that came from Babylon in what seemed to be a somewhat benign encounter, their offspring are going to come back to this city of yours and they're going to take everything that you've just shown them. Everything. Nothing shall be left. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. Think Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. All three of those kings come under the judgment of the Babylonians. And, and, um, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to the Lord, and this is, <laughs> this is about as awful as it gets. Hezekiah said, and this is the last we ever hear from him, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. That's what he said. This is what he thought. There will at least be security and peace in my day. The end. I was like, that's how, how's that for grandpa's advice and legacy, right? Uh, it's a hard word. And that sets up for us what happens in chapter 40. In other words, we know that in time. So we're looking here at the end of the 8th century. At the beginning of the 6th century, we have the Babylonians that come in. And in 596, they come in and, and take off Jehoiakim and, and his sons. And then they come back in 591 B.C. And then they come back again in 586 B.C. and destroy the whole thing. Wall, temple, the whole thing is gone now. Um, so the prophecy of Hezekiah comes true, and it's in the midst of that promised judgment that we have this incredible seam here in Isaiah 39 that seems so dark, and especially from our historical perspective, we know that the worst is yet to come for Judah. 
The worst is yet to come. And yet, out of that perspective, God then speaks His word of hope. And it's, and that's, by the way, that seems to be a prophetic pattern in the Bible. A word of judgment, and yet God can't help but speak a word of hope into it. Um, you, you get this, for example, in Hosea chapter um, 12. Ephraim, northern kingdom, Israel, you're my son. I'd do anything for you not to continue to go down the path that you're going. I don't want to do this to you anymore. I mean, so you have this deep paternal and husbandly affection that the Lord shows for his people so that even when he announces his judgment, he announces his judgment and can't help but promise his salvation in the future. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 40. So when you get this scene, you get from something really, really bad. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to turn everything upside down. Chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Here's the harpsichord, right? From Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. So you sense the tensions here, right? Warfare is coming at the end of chapter 39. It's promised. And yet chapter 40 announces for Israel, for Judah, that her warfare will come to an end. And I love how the prophets tend to whittle things down out of abstract land into something that's very concrete. Your warfare will come to an end. The, the, the peace that you've yearned for will come. And let me make this even more precise for you as these verses go on. Her iniquities are now pardoned. Her sins have been forgiven. She, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And then chapter verse 3 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord God has spoken. So, can, can you kind of put some of these pieces together? What's this promise of hope, this sort of Advent kind of sense of hope that's built in Isaiah chapter 40? It's all built around the presence of God being made manifest in their midst. God's glory is now being revealed. And when God's glory is revealed, think in terms of the ironic blessing, when the smile of God, when the, when the, when the lips of God turn upward, toward His people in a moment of salvation and deliverance, that results in peace and pardon and the forgiveness of sins. And what I find so fascinating about chapter 40 is there is no historical explanation for the causes in Judah's religious life that gave rise to God's merciful activity for them. In other words, God just did it. He did it. It wasn't like, oh, you finally got those sacrifices right. Finally got your rituals in order, right? It was none of that. It was the complete instigation and initiation of His own mercy and grace for them. Your sin has had rain long enough. And now's the moment for me to step in and to lift that burden off of you and to move you from the disorder that sin and iniquity brings into the peace that comes when my presence is manifest in your midst and my smile lightens your community. And so... Um, I, What's my time? Oh, shoot. Um, can I give you what are the three conditions for the rest of the book of Isaiah that allow uh, the people of Israel to enter into this comfort? What's the confidence of the comfort? Now, I, I, I won't get sort of lost in the woods here, but Judah was not initially persuaded. This is often not said in this, but Judah at the end of chapter 40 says, 
Are you, in effect, are you sure about all this? I mean, where, where, where is the justice that you're speaking about? Uh, we're not seeing it right now. They were incredulous. They were a wearied people. There's a reason why the servant is described in chapter 42 as one who a bruised reed he will not break, a flickering flame he will not blow out. The people of God were weary. They were worn down. They were under the burden of their own sin and disorder. So they were incredulous in the face of God's promises here. Oh, really? The time is over? Really, your comfort is upon us? So what's the confidence that God provides for His people that they can rest on the assured promises that His comfort and forgiveness is true? Three things. Number one, the enduring promises of God's Word. He says it right in chapter 4. It's the first thing the prophet says. who speaks very clearly. All flesh is grass. We're like the flowers of the field that come and go, but the Word of God lasts and stands forever. Now, you might find this of interest. After chapter 39, this encounter between Isaiah and Hezekiah, we never see a prophet named in the rest of the book. The great uh, 19th century uh, German evangelical scholar Franz Dalich have a kind of a lot of affection for Franz Dalich. Dalich describes Isaiah's presence in chapter 40 to 66 like a ghost that hovers in the, in the background. Um, the, the prophetic persona sort of moves into, to, behind the curtain of the stage and other personae come forward. And what is the first persona that comes forward? The Word of God. And this, this is the power, right? Isaiah is pushing up Daisy somewhere. He's gone. Isn't that remarkable? And by the way, the tradition has it, again, this, isn't, this is a kind of intercanonical tradition, but the tradition has it that Isaiah was hiding in a tree from King Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's god-awful son, offered his own children to Molech in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, that Isaiah hid in the hollow of a tree um, from Manasseh, who was after him, and Manasseh's henchmen cut the tree in half with Isaiah inside. Right. So that's a rough end okay um the point being isaiah is dead and gone but isn't it remarkable i think about this every time i teach isaiah like our moment right now we're listening to isaiah right now i mean the prophetic persona is, is inconsequential in a sense to the word itself that continues to reside and remain with god's people god's word remains forever that's a promise of god's comfort and his presence in our midst number two we have the promise of the um, incomparable character of israel's god Verse 18 of chapter 40, to, then, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare Him with? Do you not know, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And we think so highly of ourselves, but we're just grasshoppers, right? And he looks down with, he stretches out heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like anyone else? I am the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created all these things. Who did this in your midst? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Think about that for those of you who get to spend time out in the country, right? Where you actually don't have the quote unquote light pollution of the city. And you look up and see that vast array of stars that looks like a blanket in the sky. Here Isaiah the prophet is saying, God has every one of them named and known. Every one of them. They're in the palm of his hand. So the, so the second feature is the incomparable character and stability of God. We've got so many moving forces in our world. 
so many, many moving forces in our life, so many moving forces in our church. I mean, one thing that I think we hold on to without reservation is the incomparable and stable character of God. That, that, that is so crucial in any moment to hold on to God's character. It's promised and it's stable. And the third thing, and last thing, and then I'll let you go, is the promise of God's coming servant. And this, this emerges in chapter 42 and then continues to go on through the rest of the book. But God provides a figure within Israel's midst who takes on Israel's mission and her judgment. That's the remarkable feature. The servant is the one in chapter 53 who dies in our place and makes people righteous on account of him. That's the Advent promise we're entering into now. We who die demand the miraculous, said W.H. Alden. And Isaiah the prophet provides that in a season of Advent. A promise of comfort, a promise of the forgiveness of sins, and all of that built on the confidence of God's word, the incomparable character of God, and the promise of his servant, Jesus Christ, to do for you and for me what we could not achieve on our own. That's the Advent promise that Isaiah leaves us with. So Lord, bless us as we go our way. Strengthen us in this season. Give us wisdom and discernment. Give us hope. Lord, in the midst of the chaos, and we trust that you will do your work. Um, we, we believe, Lord, that your character is to take things that seem so impossible and, and to make possible things out of them so that we stand back at the end of it knowing only you could have achieved this. You're the creator. Do your work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.